night. <laughs> My name's John. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> we got to get through it tonight. Get off sex. We'll just down that for a long time. <laughs> the uh, I was thinking the. You know, we all, we all just special guys, special people. I met a guy, I was telling him outside at Preston, home group this last week. I'm sitting there, and, and uh, I got there a little early before the meeting, and I was having a cup of water, actually, just waiting for the meeting to start. And he comes in and sits down and introduced himself, and he had heard me do the steps last year at Preston. i never seen the guy before. And he starts to tell me stuff I didn't ever, I never knew. He... Uh, Edgar Allan Poe wrote our book <laughs> in the 1800s he wrote the book but it was called William Wilson's Story <laughs> not Bill W it was William Wilson's Story and it was just amazing and he, he uh, uh, just had all this great insight that I said I never knew that he said oh yeah he says and if you highlight something because I've got the original manuscript on computer and if you highlight the Every vowel and the first consonant before the vowel, and you put it, it spells stuff out. <laughs> Secret code in that in that book, and uh, and I, I was just flabbergasted. And, and then, now he can't stay sober, but uh, <laughs> my God, he's got this thing down pat, you know. And, and talking to him, it dawned on me, you know, but the book says the selfish self-centeredness that we believe is the root of our problem, and and what that does, that selfish self-centeredness, is that distorts. I have a distorted perception of reality, and when everything is wrapped up in you, and you're seeing everything through self-centered eyes, everything's distorted. It just it just is distorted. Because nothing is going to be the way you think it is. I mean, nothing is the way you think it is. It's always different. You know? And no matter what, and people can't correct you when you're looking through distorted eyes. They just can't. I mean, you can buy a Jaguar. You can buy a Jaguar. A thousand people can say, man, those things cost a fortune to keep on the road. Well, not for me, it won't. You know? <laughs> Just, just the rules don't apply to us, you know. When you're looking at everything through distorted, I'm I never forget, man. Because people always tell you the, the truth. They tell you what they are, you know. And that's, that's like that old, that old uh, story about the the turtle and the scorpion, you know, where they meet at the river and the scorpion wants to cross the river, and the turtle's going across. The scorpion says. Can I get a ride on your back? Turtle says, no. He says, you're a scorpion. You'll sting me. And the scorpion says, ah, why would I do that? If I sting you, you'll die. And it'll make sense to the turtle. So he gets a scorpion gets on his back. They get halfway across the river. Scorpion stings him right on the head. And he says, I can't believe you did that. <laughs> why would you do that? How could you do that? And the scorpion says, hey, you knew what I was when you picked me up. <laughs> you know? <laughs> And people always tell us the reality, but we, we're, we're looking at this with distorted perception. You know, I'll never forget, man. I took this, asked this girl out on a date. We go down, and I, cause I love scorpions. You know? <laughs> I just, I like bright, shiny scorpions, you know? You get stung a little bit, but my God, it's worth it, you know? And, and uh, I asked her out on this date, and we got on this date, and at, at the end of the date, very first date, I'm taking her home to drop her off, and she says, I have, I have something to confess to you. And I said, really? She says, yeah. I said, what? And she said, well, I, I stood a guy up to go out with you tonight. You know what my mind said? I don't blame you. <laughs> you know? She told me what she does, you know? And then I, a year and a half later, when she stands me up, <laughs> bitch, you know, I can't, how could you do that to me, you know, stand me up like that? She told me, but I got this, just because I'm so selfish, self-centered, she ain't going to do that to me. She wouldn't do that to me, you know, and then when she does, I can't be mad at her. She was honest. She told me what she does. That's the way she does it, you know, and so, and so if you play with scorpions, you're going to get stung. You just, you just are. 
And and the the problem is is that it's very gradual. And when you got this when you're so selfish and self-centered that everything is distorted, you have no way of filtering it. That's why sponsorship becomes very very important. Because see, they're not looking at your situation with just that distorted perception of selfish self-centeredness. So they can see the situation the way it is. You know, you can't see when you're climbing a mountain. You can't see the mountain you're climbing because you're standing on it. In my life, I can't see what's going on in my own life. You know? That's why a sponsor, who's not in my life, can see my mountain. So I can see your mountain, because I'm not climbing your mountain. But I can't see my own mountain. I need a sponsor to do that. And it's very gradual. You know, it's very, that, that pain and, and, and all those jackpots I get in are very gradual. It's like, it's like the way you, the way you boil a frog. You know how you boil a frog? You, if you get a pot of boiling water and you drop a frog in the water, it's, its reflexes are so fast it jumps out of the water. And you can't boil a frog that way. They escape. They just get out of the water. You know? <laughs> what you got to do if you want to boil frogs, you get your big pot of cool water. And you put it on the, on the stove and you put the frog in there. Well, that's cool. Frog likes it. Swims around. Then yeah. you turn the heat up. Gets a little hot. Frog says, get a little hot in here. <laughs> it's not that bad. Yeah. Swims, gets used to it, swims around, turn the heat up a little more. Get a little hot. Well, well, it ain't that bad. Pretty soon you crank that and then it's boiling. Now the frog's cooked, can't get out. You know? And that's what happens in every situation in my life. You know? I want to tell you, if my drinking was as bad the very at the very first drunk I had as it was at the end, hell I'd have quit. You know? But it's not that way. It starts off very it's okay. Relationships are that way. That's why abusive that's why women get involved in abusive situations. Because it's real nice to begin with and then it ain't that bad. You know. And pretty soon your the water's boiling and you're cooked. You know, and you can't get out then. Then you're just cooked. And uh, see, that's, that's the, my sponsor can see I'm swimming around in a in the water, and it's boiling, and I got to get out of the water. And my 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 mind says, well, it ain't that bad. You know, it's just not that bad. No matter what the situation is, if it's work, if it's money. If it's relationships, whatever the situation is, I don't know how to handle that stuff. And that's one time when, when uh, your sponsor, see, he's right, or she's right. I've never told anybody I sponsor not to do something because I didn't like him. You know, if I don't like him, I don't tell him nothing. You know, I watch him boil. <laughs> <laughs> I don't sponsor anybody I don't like, by the way, you know. But uh, uh, I've, I've told them not, not to do something because I, I can see they're, they're in boiling water. That water's going to get hot and they're not going to be able to get out of there, you know. And they got to get out of there. And because I can rationalize anything, you know. So my sponsor, now we got this thing cranked up really loud. <laughs> Whenever he tells me something, he's right. He's right. And so I, I don't have to justify it. I don't have to argue with him. He's right. It's just, it's just that simple. And, and I, whenever I find myself justifying my action, that action's wrong. No matter what it is, that action's wrong. See, I will subconsciously build a defense why it's okay for me to do something. And if you ask me why it's so, why are you doing that, I'll, I'll, I'll explain it to you. Why it's okay for me to do that. You know? But if you ask, if it's the right thing to do and you say, why are you doing that? I won't have an explanation why I'm doing it. I say, well, is it wrong? I mean, I don't know. I'm just doing it because I want to do it. Because yeah. I, won't, I won't build a defense. But if it's wrong, I will build a defense why it's okay for me to do that. You know. So now, my sponsor says, whenever I go into that justification or rationalization, my sponsor's simple explanation is, John, why do you find it necessary to justify yourself? Whenever he says that, I know I'm, I'm doing something wrong, you know, because rationalization, I can rationalize anything. And we do that. I got a very good friend, man. He's older than me. 
He's like 60. And uh, I ran into him a few years ago. And I hadn't seen him for a while. And he's telling me, man, he says, he's, he's, he's divorced. We got divorced about the same time. And he said, man, I met this gal. She's great. I said, great. He said, I want you to meet her. She is so neat. She is, without a doubt, the, the most beautiful, intelligent, mature, 20-year-old you ever want to meet. <laughs> I, said, I said, Roy. He said, he said oh, she really is. I've learned so much from her. <laughs> I bet you have. <laughs> he said, and you know what? Okay, John. He said, I'll tell you the truth. If, and if you counted the days, days sober, She's probably been sober longer than me. Now, they weren't all consecutive days, okay, because she did drink occasionally, you know, here and there. Uh, but they were only for one or two days at a time, and she'd come back to the program. And so she's got a lot more than the three months sober that, 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 that she's picked up for a kid, you know. So I can rationalize that stuff out, why it's okay for me to do that, all day long, you know. But your sponsor, see... And I think that's what the book says about rationalization. Rationalization is the process we go through to make the socially unacceptable socially acceptable. Is this not a form of insanity? And whenever I start to rationalize something or justify it, why it's okay for me to do that? My sponsor just says, his answer is, you know, why do you find it necessary to justify yourself? You don't need to explain anything to anybody if it's the right thing to do. Not at all. And that's one area where, where when you start talking to your sponsor in step 10 and reviewing your actions for the day and putting that in perspective in step 11. Because for the first time in step 11, I get to sit down with me and God and just have time together every day in, in quiet prayer and meditation. And I know how to pray and meditate. You know, what, what that meditation does is that puts all those things in perspective of what am I doing? What did I do today? How does all that fit in? when I'm just me and God and then when I get through with that I can talk to my sponsor about it and get all that distorted perception stuff worked out because I'm whatever the situation is I'm going to look at it it's going to be distorted because I'm looking at it through my eyes and my eyes are so wrapped up in me and in my selfish self-centeredness that it'll, that it'll be distorted and I had no idea how to meditate you know I thought I was going to pray and meditate and by the way do you see where that guy says if, you, if we give him a billion dollars this is true if we'll give him a billion dollars to start, he can solve the world's problems through meditation. Because he's going to hire some professional meditators. And then we'll just get, he said, if you get one-tenth of one percent meditating on the same thing, it'll fix everything. And he'll do it for a billion dollars. I'd do it for half that. <laughs> you know? I really would. But anyway, I didn't know, I didn't know how, to, how to meditate. I thought I was going to clear my mind and things were going to come to me that were going to just be mind-boggling. And I would... I didn't know how to meditate. I'd go to these step speaker meetings. These guys would stand up and they'd talk about how they would pray and meditate. And they get at 5 o'clock in the morning to do that stuff. And uh, I thought, man, if you're going to pray and meditate, you got to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning to pray and meditate. And I know... I couldn't get up at 5 o'clock. I mean, I, I thought, okay, the key to getting up at 5 o'clock is to go to bed early. You know? So I'd go home from AA at night after drinking 15 cups of coffee. <laughs> and I'd try to go to bed, you know, and I'm just wired. And I'm sitting there pretty soon. It's midnight and everything. It's 1 o'clock. i got to get up at 5 o'clock. i only got four hours. And I sat there. I couldn't get So if I talked to a buddy of mine, and he was doing the steps. And he gets up at 5 o'clock. And I said, how do, you, how do you get up at 5 o'clock to pray and meditate? And he said, well, he said, it's simple. He said, what you do is go home tonight and go to bed and then set your alarm for 5 o'clock. <laughs> and when the alarm goes off, get up. <laughs> and I said, man, I've tried to do that. Then I don't, because I, I can't get to sleep. And I, I'm, he said, no, don't worry about going to sleep. Worry about getting up. <laughs> he said, because you'll never do it. He said, what you do is go home, set the alarm. Alarm goes off 5 o'clock, get up. And then go in, and he says, what I do is, is, is I shower and shave and get dressed. And then I go in and have, I get dressed to meet God. And then I go in and I, I, uh, I pray, I get my book out, and I read something out of the book, whether sometimes he reads the Bible, sometimes he reads the big book. 
And then he prays and invites God into the, the time they have together and clears his mind and meditates. And he says, you do that and then go to work. And he says, do that every day. Don't go take no naps during the day. Stay up. You should do that two or three days in a row and you'll go to bed early. Won't be a problem doing that. <laughs> so I thought, great. So I went home and I was all excited to get up and pray and meditate. And I sat down for 5 o'clock, stayed up till 1. Finally went to sleep, got up at 5 o'clock, showered and got dressed, got the book out, sat in my chair, read something out of the book, prayed, invited God into the next hour, cleared my mind, have God come in and help me. God told me to go back to bed. <laughs> Never have been able to figure that deal out. So, if I don't on me, it's pretty arrogant of me to tell God when we're going to talk. <laughs> and uh, that's how self-centered I am. I think God, I'll tell you when we'll talk. You know. Uh, so I, well, my job is, is is to set time aside when when God can talk and we want to get together. And so, and the best place for me to do that's in my car a lot. Now I, now I do spend some time in the morning uh, alone meditating, but for a long time, and the only time I was alone was in my car. And so I, I never listened to music. Music just screws me up, man. I mean, I want to drink when I listen to that music. And uh, so I'd, I'd never listen to the radio, and I would just uh, spend time with me and God in the car and have some great meditations. And I had to think of something. I just couldn't clear my mind. I had to think of something, you know? And the best thing for me to do, that's the purpose of that 11th step is to increase our conscious contact with God. It's not through prayer and meditation to increase our conscious contact with God. So what I did is I looked at a situation, no matter what the situation is, maybe it's how I got married, how I met my wife, how I, why, what am I doing in Dallas? And then I would take it back. I started looking at that and I said, okay, how did I get to Dallas? And so I'd work it back. What brought me to Dallas? And uh, sometimes you've got to go back 10 years. To find out why you are where you are, you know. And what I found, I started, I started heading for Dallas ten years before I got here. You know, didn't know I was coming then, but it was all set up ten years before I got here. See, I have two sisters that are twins. They're identical. They're peas in a pod. They look alike, talk alike, act alike. They both went to college, graduated in physical education. Both teach school. One was teaching in Utah. One was teaching in a little town called Ida- Preston, Idaho, <coughs> up there. And then they'd get together in the summer and on some break and they'd go waitress tables, what they did a lot of times. And uh, they just are, are identical. Still, to this day, they're identical. They cannot see each other. I mean, they, I mean, they, their haircut's the same and everything. They cannot see each other for two years and they and run into each other and their hair's the same. You know, it's just amazing. So, uh, But the sister in Idaho, she met a guy up there, a rancher. Started dating this rancher, and they, they were going to get married. Just destroyed the sister in Utah. Because now her running buddy's getting married. She didn't even have a boyfriend. Wasn't even dating anybody. And she's getting married. Owns a big ranch up there. Had motorcycles and horses and all kinds of snowmobiles, boat. Had a lake on that thing. <laughs> Perfect stuff for a PE grad. And... Uh, so they were all excited about that. And, but her sister in Utah was just devastated. The day after the wedding, she left and went to New York for the summer. And married in June, she left and went to New York. And cried. I remember sitting there the day after. She was just crying because her sister... She was happy for her sister, but she just lost her, <laughs> her running mate. And uh, while she was gone, my dad got a phone call from the FBI. And what had happened is that she, the, the sister in Utah was taking a continuing education course up at the university, and she was taking self-defense to get her qualifications. And, and uh, the guy teaching the class was an FBI agent. And he said, this is years ago. He said, 30 years ago. And he said, uh, equal, the equal rights were just getting big back then. They only had like 17 female agents at that time in the FBI. No, excuse me, they had six. She was the seventh female agent they hired. And uh, he said, we got to, the Justice Department's told us we have to have as many female agents as male agents. And so he said, it's a good time for you to apply to be an FBI agent. And she's never thought about it. But she went down and applied, and they interviewed her, and they, they said, well, you got to have three qualifications. You have to have a law degree or an accounting degree or three years executive experience. Now, we consider school teachers as executive, but you only got two years, come back and see me when you got three years. Well, she forgot about it. Blew it off, forgot about it. 
And when she got back, my dad gave her the message from this FBI agent, so she called him on the phone. He said, I've been reviewing your file, and, and I see it's been three years now. I want to finish the interview with you. So she went down and interviewed and took the physical and passed the physical, and they hired her. She got a letter. Nixon was president. I can't tell you how long ago that was. And Because uh, she got a letter from Nixon. It's like joining the military. You know, you get a, you get a three-year hitch. And uh, so she went to Quantico and graduated. And her first assignment when you're an FBI agent is usually someplace like, you know, North Dakota, something like that. But she got her first assignment to Dallas, Texas. And everybody was shocked that a new agent would get assigned to Dallas. And she got her assignment to Dallas, Texas, and she moved to Dallas. And as soon as that happened, man, now that Sister in Idaho is really jealous. She's, now, the guy's no longer a rancher she's married to. He's a farmer. Okay, he's a farmer up there. He's not a rancher. He's a farmer. We got this crummy dirt farm up here. And my sister's down there packing a gun, chasing bank robbers. You know, it's just a terrible deal. But uh, all that happened ten years before I got here. Okay, and she's the sister that sent me the, the that called me on the phone, invited me to come to Dallas. That's why I'm in Dallas. Is because of that. And what happened after I got to Dallas? I mean, my whole life came together. And I got my sponsor to help me take the fourth step. And see, I'm supposed to be in Dallas. I know I'm supposed to be in Dallas. And I, that ten years before I got here, that's when that whole. If anything would have been different in that, if uh, if my sister hadn't got married, Jane never would have come to join the FBI. She wouldn't have done it. She wouldn't have left left Utah. If she had had a boyfriend, if she had gotten married first. Or even had a boyfriend, even a prospect, you know. <laughs> she wouldn't have left because it was very important to her. Since she moved down here, she met a guy and they got married and they got three, four kids now, four kids. And, they're, and they're, it's all worked out for her perfect, you know. But if anything would have been different back then, she wouldn't have come to Dallas and then where would I be? You know, I'm supposed to be in Dallas. No question in my mind about it. And that all happened 10 years before I got And they don't know that. So they, they think that, they just think it was stuff that happened. You know, that I came to Dallas because of my sister. They don't know God was involved in all that. No question in my mind. Because if anything's different, my whole life changes. My whole life changes, and I'm not in Dallas, and I don't find my sponsor to help me take the steps. He's supposed to be my sponsor. Still my sponsor today. You know? Now, what I think happens is, as I give myself something to think about, see, I have, I have spiritual myopia. I'm nearsighted spiritually. I have no idea how what happens today is going to affect me 10 years from now until I look back 10 years later and say, son of a gun, look how that worked out. It's amazing. See, I'm thoroughly convinced as I've gone through all my stuff in, in that meditation, nothing bad has ever happened. And I figured that out when a friend of mine, I'm in, I'm in a step study and... This is, I was like two and a half years sober. And these guys invited me to step study, and they all had ten years or more. And I'm in there with all these guys, and I, they're gods to me, you know. I think, my God, I'm really excited to go to the step study. And uh, they're in there, and, and we're having a great step study. And I was a little hot one day, because I'd, I'd given the guys, this one guy in the group, some money. And he'd ripped me off for a little bit of money. And I know you're almost supposed to give it, but I gave it to him. I loaned it to him. Supposed to give it, but I loaned it. And back then, I didn't have enough money to loan or give. And he was supposed. To, and, he didn't, and I was really hot. And I'm telling this my group study about this guy that ripped me off this money. And Ralph, his name's Ralph. Ralph said, "Johnny said, wait a minute. Before you get finished with that, let me ask you a question. Would you trade? Would you sell me your experience?" of going broke and living outdoors, living in your car, sleeping in your car, weighing 135 pounds and walking those casinos and, and finding nickels, dimes, and quarters and selling your blood, would you sell me that experience for a million dollars? I said, no. He said, would you sell me all your pain that you went through for that? Would you sell me that for two million dollars? I said, no way. He said, then you've got to be the most selfish son of a bitch I've ever met. I said, what are you talking about, Ralph? And he said, think about it, John. You won't sell me your pain and all the troubles you had. You won't sell me that for $2 million. But you're willing to rob that man of his for a couple hundred bucks? 
You're robbing him of the same opportunity you had by giving him that money. That's that's the selfishest thing I've ever heard in my life. When you won't allow him to have the same experience you had of living in your car. And boy, I did, it just all came home. How can I say that was bad? How can I say that going to jail, getting popped and going to jail and spending time in jail was bad? When it's the best thing that ever happened. Because it got me here. And I'm not willing to sell that stuff for $10 million. You know? And I'm willing to bet you wouldn't sell your story either. For any amount of money. Because it got, to, got you to where you are today. I'm not going to sell one time I've been to jail. You know, one of my best meditations was in jail. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> I'm living in my, I'm living in that house. Just moved out of uh, my car into that house, and I'm living in that house that Humphreys let me live in. And I get a call from a guy that I know in AA who's down. He's uh, he's down at the casino, drunk. His name's Mike, and he's drunk and he wants some help. So I'm. It's Sunday morning. I drive down there to the casino, pick him up. I'm driving back. I'm going up North Virginia, taking him to the house, doing this 12-step call. And I drive by, and here's a cop coming the other direction. And he does one of those double takes at you, you know. I turn to Mike and say, well, I'm going to jail. <laughs> and he's drunk. He's drinking a beer. Last beer, I'll let him finish it. He says, what for? I said, I don't know, but whenever they look at me like that, I go to jail. You know? <laughs> I look at my rearview mirror, sure enough, the guy flips the UE, comes back, turns his lights on, pulls me over, and uh, I'm thinking, oh, Jesus. So Mike says, let me go talk to him. I'll tell him, help him. <laughs> Sit where you are, don't say a damn word, you know? Cop comes up, asks me for my driver's license, and uh, I give him my driver's license, and he looks at me and he says, uh, are you aware you're driving on expired license plates? And I knew that. My sponsor told me your license plate's expired. See, I've been living in in uh, Seattle, right? Been living up in Seattle, and I moved to Nevada, and I've been down there a couple years, and and uh, never, you know, the sticker's only that big on those little things, and I mean, another state. You know, you don't need to renew that right away. And uh, my sponsor said, "Your tag, you gotta, you gotta get Nevada tax on there." And I said, "Well, I will." You know, I asked the guy. I said, "How do you? You're driving the opposite direction. How do you know my license plate's expired? You're in another state." And he said, "Well, six months ago, I was a cop in Seattle." <laughs> The only cop in the only cop in the state of Nevada that's going to know that I drive by, right? So then he says, "Mr. Already said uh, all red." He said, "Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been arrested for a felony?" I said, "No." And he said, "Well, we busted an all red when I was up there that had ten thousand tabs of LSD." I said, well, "I don't know. It wasn't me." And uh, he said, "Well, so there's not all red in Bellevue that was arrested for running a speed factor." And I said, well, "I don't know." Then. He said, well, we're going, to run, we're going to run a check on you find out. And then I thought, well, I better let him know who I am. <laughs> I said, well, let me tell you, if you, if you pull my file, let me, tell you, let me tell you what you'll find, okay? You're going to find a lot of stuff. Because okay? I'm worried now about some warrant, right? I've only been sober a year and a half, and I'm worried about some warrant. Because, you know, you can clean it up, and you may, but you don't know what's going to pop up on some damn computer. And I said, well, I said, you're going to find a lot of stuff. It's just drunk stuff. Okay, I'm an alcoholic. I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Been sober a year and a half, so I'm on a 12-step car helping this guy. And there you see, he's drinking, he's drunk, I'm trying to help him. And uh, I said, I don't know whether I got any outstanding warrants or not, but I want you to know if I got a warrant out, I'll take care of it first thing in the morning. <laughs> and he said, Well, we'll find out. So he's back there in his car for a long time, a long time. And finally, he comes back and he says, uh, Well, you don't have any warrants. I said. Well, didn't think I did. You know? And he said, but you got a lot of stuff. And I said, yeah. And he said, part of your stuff is you got a lot of failure to appear. And I said, yeah. But it's just that drunk stuff. You know, there's nothing in the last year and a half. And he said, yeah, but it's a real privilege to get a ticket. I'd never looked at it that way. Yeah. But he said, uh, we're not going to issue you a ticket. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to arrest you. So, so I get arrested, okay? I mean, this is a successful 12-step call, okay? I'm out here. I get arrested. They call me the cop car, take the drunk home, okay? I go to jail. So 
Condon, and I think what had happened was this cop was new on the force, and and Ted Bundy had been from Seattle, you know, and he thought we got it. we got Ted Bundy's running mate right here. We got his running mate here. They checked, they checked FBI, Interpol, they checked everybody on me, you know. Uh, I'm clean. They, there's nothing out there that's outstanding anymore. And but he didn't know that. Then they thought he was going to run everything, so they checked me all out. Next, I spent the night in jail. They, I got down there and said, "You want to make a phone call?" I said, "No." I'm not calling my sponsor. I want to promise you that. <laughs> so the next morning, I go before the judge, and she looks at my file. She said, they arrested you for an expired license plate? <laughs> Damnest thing I've ever seen, judge. <laughs> so uh, what was it? What was the fine? Oh, it was, uh, it was like a $150 fine. And she credited me, credited me like half of that. And... Uh, she said, so it was like 75 bucks or something like that. And I didn't have any money. You know, I said, well, I can pay you Friday. <laughs> you know? And so she said, well, well, we'll have to see about that. So she gave me a bunch of forms to fill out. And uh, I filled out all these forms and they took them. And then I'm waiting to get out of jail. I figured I'm getting out of jail. She's going to check me out and fill these forms out and get out of jail. So I'm down there. Now it's noon, right after noon. Just before noon, they read a bunch of names off. I figured I'm getting out of jail, right? They want to get you out of there before they have to feed you. And uh, so I'm getting out of jail. So they read a bunch of names off. I get in line. We go upstairs. And the guy says, okay, take off your clothes. Here, here are your jail togs. And I said, I think I'm supposed to get out. And the guy says, what's your name? I said, all right. He said, oh, yeah. He said, there you go. You got a $150 fine. You don't have any money. So the judge dropped it to half price. And you don't have it. So you're going to do it at $2 a day. You're going to get out of here in February. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. I'm going to spend two months in this joint for an expired license plate, you know? Unbelievable. Lose my job. No. So now I'm really hot. I'm really screwed up. And so I get I get my clothes on, and they take me up there. They put me in the community cell. There are 15 of us in that cell. You know, we got the guys over here doing push-ups. we got the black and white TV up in the corner. <laughs> I'm nuts. we got a guy across the hall in a strip cell. He's on drugs, and he's running around naked over there, yelling. And, uh, and I'm laying on my bunk, and I'm just, I'm mad. I'm mad in hell. I mean, I'm mad. I mean, I'm mad at God. I mean, what am I doing in jail? I'm, I'm doing God's work, and I get thrown in jail. I'm mad at AA. I'm mad at my sponsor. I'm mad at my parents. I mean, this is not the way it's supposed to be. I'm a year and a half sober. It's just terrible. And uh, But the only thing I know how to do is get quiet, get quiet and pray and talk to God and find out what's supposed, what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to find out what knowledge I'm supposed to gain the knowledge of God's will and the power to carry it out. And I learned how to accept the situation I'm in. And I started praying, and I got real quiet, and I got real peaceful. And uh, I remember saying, "God, if you want me to stay here, I'll stay here." Because it came to me that that cop kept talking in my ears, and he kept when he arrested me, he's handcuffed me. He said, "Mr. R, you got to learn. It's not enough for you to not drink." You gotta learn to be responsible. And it just was, I couldn't get that out of my head, you know, it's just echoing. I gotta be responsible. And, uh, it finally dawned on me, you know, I started laughing, because it dawned on me that, that my parents didn't put me in jail, AA didn't put me in jail, my sponsor didn't put me in jail, the cop who arrested me didn't put me in jail. You know, he didn't have the power to do that unless I give it to him. And I'd given him the power to arrest me by my lack of responsibility and not doing what I'm supposed to do to drive in this country. You know? And I I couldn't believe it. And I started laughing. And I said, okay, God, I said, I know why I'm here. If you want me to stay here, I'm willing to stay here until February. You know, I just want you to know that it's okay. And whatever you want me to do, I'll do. Maybe I'm supposed to meet somebody in here to help. And I got up, and I went over. I was going to watch the guy run around the strip cell. <laughs> and I hadn't been there five seconds. I hadn't been at the bars five seconds before the jailer yells out, All right. I said, Yeah. And he threw me my clothes and said, You're getting out. The judge signed the order to let you out. So I got out of jail. I got out of jail about 4 o'clock on Monday, and I was excited. Man, I ran down to central office, right around the corner from the jail there. And I went over to central office, and I walked in, and Bruce looks up and says, I thought you were in jail till February. <laughs> How did you know? He's that drunk you were 12-step and call. Tell us all about it. <laughs> uh, man alive. So I borrowed their phone, called my sponsor, 
asked me if he could impound my car. I said, can I get a ride home? And he said, yeah. So he comes by and picks me up and we're driving home. And he said, you know, that drunk called me. And I said, well, I know it called everybody. And I said, hey, <laughs> he must have thought it was real funny to get me busted. He said, well, he said, he told me to arrest. I thought you were drinking with him. And uh, he said, no, you weren't drinking. But I called on there to find out. And they said, no, you're arrested for expired license, but you had not been drinking. You were sober. So he said, I was coming down to get you. $150 bail. I was going to come down and get you and bail you out. And I got halfway there, and then I thought, wait a minute. What am I doing? I didn't put him in there. What am I doing getting him out? He's there for a reason. I said, did you learn why you had to go to jail? And I said, yeah, I learned why I had to go. He said, well, good, maybe you won't have to go back. And I said, I, and I, you know what I haven't? I haven't had to go back since then. He didn't rob me of my pain. You know, he let me say, I'm going to tell you, if you get thrown in jail, I may be the last person you want to call. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I just might be the last one. But if you only got one call, don't call me. You know? Because I ain't coming. You know, you're there for a reason, and you have to go back until you find out what it is. You know? <laughs> that, that was the best place for me to have that meditation. It was in prison. It was in jail. Not prison. It was in jail. All those meditations are going to help me get in touch with my, with my power. And I had to go back and figure out, what am I doing here? I had to give my mind something to think about. How did this situation, why is this situation the way it is? And relive that situation and go back. Somebody's got to go back 10 years to figure it out. And that's an incredible experience when you do that. You know? And sometimes you have to talk to my sponsor about it. You know, get somebody else's perspective of what happened in that situation. Because my situation is going to be distorted. But in meditation and going back and looking at how that situation works out. It doesn't get distorted. That distortion is taken out of the picture. You find out other people involved in getting you to wherever you are. I don't think, because God is going to work through people. He always is. And so I was dying. I, I, <laughs> My deal in moving here to Ute, in moving here to Dallas and getting married was an incredible experience. I got married in Dallas. I told you about that. And I uh, got back in the insurance business in Dallas. Got my sponsor in Dallas. And uh, got divorced in Dallas. You know? And that was a, that was a weird experience. Because I'm sitting there, uh, been sober nine years, eight years, and a lot of pain. And... A lot of fallacies you hear in Alcoholics Anonymous. So one of the great fallacies is somebody will always say, uh, you'll hear somebody say, well, I would rather have uh, quality sobriety than quantity. Right? You ever notice how those that say that never have any quantity? <laughs> <laughs> They've always got a couple, three years, usually three years when you're making that kind of statement, you know? I'm, like, yeah, I'm, I'm more impressed now with long-term sobriety than when I first got here. Now, long, long-term sobriety impresses the hell out of me today because I know those those guys have lived sober and lived life without drinking, you know, for 30 years. That's incredible because they've gone through life. They've had all the ups and downs. They've gone through trials and tribulations and hardships and heartbreak and financial problems and all that stuff, and they didn't drink. That's an incredible deal, you know. I found out that when, if you're going through a divorce in AA, there's, there's just no right way to do it. You're just not going to do divorce right. You know, it's going to be very painful. There's no right way to do it. And the group's going to be split up into thirds. There's the group. AA's got thirds. We're a third in AA. Because no matter what you do, a third's going to be mad at you. They're going to criticize you. You know, you may go through that and you may say, okay, I'm not going to date anybody. I'm just not going to date anybody. Work on me and stay, stay by myself. Work on me. And after a few months, people are going to say, oh, look at John. The third is going to say, you know, he never has accepted that divorce. Look at that. <laughs> He's just isolating. He's isolating out there. He needs to get out a little more. He's just not accepting that divorce. That's his problem right there. So you think, okay, I'm going to date. I'm going to date somebody. So you start dating somebody. And you got a third of the group saying... Look at this stuff. Look at this, would you? <laughs> he's rebounding. Yep, he's rebounding. <laughs> Getting involved way too soon for this. Way too soon for this. Shouldn't be dating one guy like that. No siree. 
it's a bad deal. Bad deal. So you think, okay, I'm going to date a bunch of people. And then you got the other third. Say, Look at this. You know, guys screwing the whole group. We're screwing everybody. everybody. <laughs> going through the group, getting everybody. It's just terrible. Terrible, terrible, terrible. terrible. So no matter what you do, a third of them are going to be mad at you for it, you know. So you just get through it best you can. And uh, <laughs> so I'm going through that divorce. And, and uh, they told me this. Now, when all else fails, work with others. Get out there and work with others. So I started working with others, and I started. I, the guys I was sponsoring got tired of me. They said, "Get some other people to sponsor. We're tired of you talking to us." You know. <laughs> that hurt my stuff, you know. <laughs> so I started hanging out a lot of newcomers meetings, you know. And I go to these newcomer meetings and, and pass my card out, newcomers. And uh, problem is when you do that, they start calling you. They start calling you. And so these guys are calling me and start sponsoring a lot of these newcomers. And this was, this was, uh, you know, 12, 13 years ago. And they were just coming out of these treatment centers. And they would come out of there and they would, uh, they would call me on the phone. And they had all this new, new lingo that I hadn't heard about. They'd call me on the phone and they'd say, if you're going to help me, we need to get together and, uh, you have to just know me real well. And we, I need to discuss some of my core issues. I didn't know what those that was. Core issues? I said, well, yes, yes, I have some core issues. See, I come from a, John, I come from a very uh, dysfunctional family. My father left, and because of that, I have some abandonment issues that I've never been able to deal with, you know? And since I had no proper role models in my life, I never learned to set proper boundaries. And so my boundaries are all messed up. And quite frankly, because of that, it's led to a sex addiction. It's just driving me crazy. <laughs> I'm a, hell, I'm exhausted. <laughs> my God. What are we going to do? I, this is major stuff here. So they come over to the house and they bring these books over and they're on their latest designer drug and uh, and I don't know anything about that. I'm not a doctor so I can't tell them not to take it, you know, whatever they've got to do and, and they bring these books over because I, I, I get up to speed. I'm, this, this is new wave stuff here. And uh, I want to tell you, you want to read that stuff? Let me tell you what will happen to you. You'll relate. That's what happens there. Because what they've done very conveniently is they've is they've compartmentalized your defects of character and made them disorders. You know? That's what they've done. They've taken all your defects of character and your shortcomings and they've compartmentalized them, put them in little compartments so they can treat them. And I'll tell you why they did that. Because I was in the insurance industry when they did it. The insurance industry got tired of paying for recovery. You know, they'd, they'd paid fifteen, eighteen, twenty thousand, thirty thousand $20,000, $30,000 a pop, send us to treatment, and then we'd get drunk. And then a quarter of a million dollars later, when we've been ten times, they think, this ain't working, you know? And uh, so, they, so they said, we're going to quit doing it. Because, you know, the percentage is this. Here's the reality. It's the same percent. Those that go to treatment versus those that just walk through the doors of AA, stay sober. Same percentage. Those that go to treatment and those that walk through the door, same person. So they said, hell, we'll just have them go to AA. So we're, so we're going to limit it to $5,000. It's lifetime maximum benefit for that mental, that mental disorder of alcoholism. It's $5,000. Well, treatment says, Oof, we can't do it for $5,000. What are we going to do? Well, hey, wait a minute. Would, would you guys pay uh, $5,000 for depression? Oh, yeah, we'd pay $5,000 for depression. How, how about anxiety disorder? Yeah, yeah we'll pay 5000 for anxiety disorder. How about, you know, uh, sex? If a guy's addicted to sex, would you pay 5000 for sex addiction? I guess we'll have to pay 5000 for sex addiction. Yeah. <laughs> so they can take every one of them. See, that way they can get some money. See, if you've been to treatment in the last 12 years, you didn't come out with just one problem, did you? <laughs> You came out with a bunch of problems. Because they can't treat just one problem and get paid for it. they got to treat a bunch of problems. So you're going to be diagnosed with a bunch of problems. you know. So then in order to justify that diagnosis, they got to write a bunch of books. And of course, I relate to them all. 
you know, because all they're doing is describing my character defects in every one of those books. All my anxieties, all my fears, all that stuff is going on. The depression, oh yeah. I want to tell you something. You drink a depressant for 20 years, you're going to get depressed. You really will. You'll, and, and you'll be depressed a while. You know? So I'm sitting there, and, and these guys are doing that, and I'm, I'm all confused, and they're still getting drunk. I'm not supposed to, I'm not, I'm staying out of their business. They got this stuff going on, and I don't know what to do, and they're getting drunk, and I'm not getting any better. I'm getting, in fact, I'm getting worse. And I go to my sponsor, and I said, my program in working with others, my program is not working. It's not working. And he looked at me, and he said, well, well, why don't you try ours? <laughs> and then he asked me some key questions. He said, John, he said, how many people under a year are you sponsoring? I said, 14. <laughs> he said, any of them getting well? I said, no, I'm getting sick. And then he asked me a key question. He said, John, have you passed on to them the same simple program that was passed on to you? And I wasn't. And I had to go make amends to those guys. Because I wasn't passing on them. I didn't give them the same opportunity y'all gave me to have the simple program of Alcoholics Anonymous, all that stuff out of it. And I don't want to leave here after five weeks all month and not have the pro- not tell you the program that's passed on to me because that's what I'm responsible for. And when I said, I know you don't have this at the glass house. But we do at Preston. When I sit in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and they want to talk about anger management and what their therapist has them do to, to manage their anger and control their anger and and I've had them beat the you know they get the beating stick and, and all this stuff you know and what their therapist has them doing for their sex addiction or for their their financial problems and I sit in a meeting and I don't get mad at those guys okay I get mad at guys like me See, because I know better. They don't know any better. You know? They don't know any better than that. And the program of Alcoholics Anonymous was passed on to me doesn't say anything that I have learned to control or manage any of those issues. At all. Any of them. In fact, it tells me you can't. If I could have managed my issues and dealt with my issues, I would have done it 21 years ago. And you'd have a different speaker tonight. I come to AA because I can't do that. See, I don't call my sponsor to learn how to control those issues. I call my sponsor to learn how to surrender those issues. See, there's a big difference between surrendering and, and managing, controlling those issues. Can't control them. Don't, even, don't know how to start to control those things. Don't know how to start to manage those things. See, the problem is I have... I, I'm beyond human power. And lack of power is my dilemma. So there's no human that's going to be able to help me with that. I, I don't call my sponsor to learn how to manage my life better. That's not what I... He's not a fire chief. You know, that, that runs in there and puts the fire out. I got these guys, they would call me and they'd, they'd tell me what they'd done and say, what am I going to tell her? Well, about the truth. Oh, God, she'll leave. Probably. <laughs> As well she should. Yeah. I, t- I told a guy that one time, and I said, I said she wasn't leaving. I said, God damn, I said, she's as sick as you. <laughs> and he said, you think so? I said, yeah. I said, if, if you slap a healthy girl and break her eardrum, she's gone. You know? I said, the fact that she's staying with you doesn't mean she's a sick puppy. You know? And so now people told her, snitched on me. She's mad at me. You know? <laughs> she won't talk to me. That's <laughs> just amazing. I need, to, you know, I need to send her over here to Terry's group. But, uh, see, our, the purpose of the program is to help us not start the fire. We're not a support group that we go talk about our problems and try to fix them after the fact. Okay? We have a design for living 
that works. So we don't start the fire. What happens in four and five is we clean up all the fires, stop them from burning, we put them out, and we go in step nine and we and we start to rebuild those things by making those amends, and then we're not going to start any more fires in ten, eleven, so that we don't we're not we're not having to come running into AA as a, as a fire station with our hair on fire. Saying, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? You ever you ever talk to somebody that's in the program, working the program, you haven't seen them for a while? And, the, and you say, how's it going? It's going good. Well, what's going on? Oh, nothing. You still working the same job? Yeah, still working the same job. But see, you were dating someone, so well, we got married. Still, still married? Yeah, still married. Any, anything going on? No, just, it's real dull. You talk to somebody that's not, what happens? What's going on? Oh, God, you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe it, God. That bank of mine, gee, even the creepers. They didn't get one of my deposits in. They did not get my deposit list. I made, I made the deposit. They didn't get it listed. My rent check bounced, and they kicked me out. I had to go another place. That girl I was dating, you shouldn't believe. She was screwing around on me, screwing around on me. She was screwing around on me. So I went and had a fare on hers to pay her back, and then she found out about that. Oh, my God, it's just just it. And when I had a fare that got pregnant, oh, my God, that just... Just terrible, terrible, terrible. <laughs> That's what happens when you're when you run a fire station, you know. <laughs> but when you don't start the fire and you learn to surrender and you go through the process of those steps, you don't have that kind of stuff, you know. See, the purpose of the program is to enable you to find a power, because you can't get rid of that stuff by yourself. You're beyond human power. So you're going to have to find a power greater than yourself that will solve your problem. That's what we do in here. And when we get to the final step of step 12, it tells us having had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps. See, we have a common disease. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share a common problem. What's that common problem? Well, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not sex. It's not gambling. It's not drugs. Sorry. Because there are a lot of people in AA that aren't drug addicts. A lot that are. The only thing we have in common is alcohol. That's our common problem. And we share a common solution. A lot of people think that's the steps. It's not. Okay? We do the steps, but we don't even do them the same, do we? Okay? The common solution is having had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps. Our common solution is God. And the only reason to work the steps is to find God. That's why we do that is to find a power greater than ourselves that will solve our problem. That's our common solution. Now, that only applies if you believe in God. If you believe that God really does love you and God really is concerned about you and he's going to take care of you and he's going to solve your problem. Well, yeah, yeah, there's a God, you know, and, and I believe in God and he created the world, but... Come on, John. He's not personally going to solve my problem. He's not personally going to get involved in my life and take care of me. Come on, man. I mean, that's a little ridiculous. Think God's going to do that, isn't it? He's personally going to do that stuff. It's just a, some of this stuff's just a coincidence, you know. It just works out that way, you know. It's like I'm sitting there at Dallas North. And by the way, they know where I know this. <laughs> I'm at Dallas North, and birthday night. This is 18 years ago. It's birthday night. 200 people there at Dallas North. Ask me, I'm going to read well, I'm only two and a half years sober at the time. Joanne comes working the front desk. She comes up. She got a 12-step call. And she's this little lady called from San Antonio. And her son's drunk up here, and he's suicidal. And she called information, asked for AA. They gave her Dallas North. So she wants somebody to make this 12-step call because her son's going to kill himself. You want this 12-step call? I said, well, I want to talk to her. He's supposed to call. So I called her in San Antonio, told her who I was, and she said, oh, she started crying. She said, can you help my son? He's going to kill himself. He's been drinking and drugging. He's real screwed up. All disoriented. 
he's going to kill himself. But he called me and asked me to call AA because he couldn't find their phone number. He's so messed up. Would you call? Would you go see my son for me? And I said, yeah. So I called him on the phone. He answered the phone. I told him who it was. And I said, you want some help? He said, yeah, I need some help. And I said, well, tell me where you are. We'll come see you. And he said, I can't. don't know how to tell you. I'm, I'm too disoriented. I mean, I've been, I've been up for two weeks. I've been drinking and drugging for two weeks. I'm so disoriented. I can't tell you how to get here. And I said, well, tell me where you are. He said, I, I don't, the street's only two blocks long. It's a brand new street. It's not even on Mapsco. You'll never find me. I can't tell you how to get here. I'm too mess, messed up to tell you how to get here. I said, tell me where you are. I'll find you. So he lived on Dome Street. Now, I know there's some people here who know where Dome Street is. You went and took pictures of the house. <laughs> but anyway, I, I used to ask this question every every uh, month in Dallas, Texas. They don't know where Dome Street is. In 18 years, nobody knows where Dome Street is. That's thousands of alcoholics I've asked in Dallas, Texas, where Dome Street is. Nobody knows where Dome Street is. Okay? It's only two blocks long. Back then, it's a brand new street. But see, I know, I knew right where Dome Street was. I have a client who lives on Dome Street. Like, he's not on the Dome Street, he's literally the next door neighbor of the guy making the phone call. I said, I don't know right where you are. Little street, I don't know how to get there. Be there in 10 minutes. I grabbed a guy sponsoring and we went to Dome Street. That's just a coincidence, isn't it? God ain't going to do that. God ain't going to put just the right person at just the right time with just the right information in our lives to help us, is he? That's just a coincidence. Right? You know the odds of that? The odds of a lady in San Antonio calling directory information and saying, I need AA in Dallas. They give her Dallas North. 200 people. I'm two years sober, but for some reason, Joanne picks me out of the group to make this 12-step call, and I know where Dome Street is. You know the odds of that? I'm a gambler, right? <laughs> well, you want to bet on that deal. That'll happen an awful lot. Let you know? me just bet $1,000. That'll happen. You know? Okay, we made that, that toast. The guy had a gun. The guy had a gun. He was sitting there. We made that toast. He got sober, and he's moved back down to San Antonio now. It was an incredible... Uh, Tom, that was Tom's 12th, first 12-step call. You know, it's just a coincidence, isn't it? God ain't gonna do that. In a little while after, I'm going out to California on business, and I get out of the airport, and there's a, I'm gonna catch the nine o'clock flight. Well, there's a big sign up there that says the plane's been delayed. We got flight problems. Plane's been delayed. No big deal. I get my coffee. I read the newspaper. Hour later, they come back and say this plane ain't going anywhere. It's been delayed. It's been, it's broke. Can't fix it. But there's a there's a plane two gates down going to California. You can run down there and get on standby. There's some standby. Well, a hundred of us run down there. There's 17 seats. A hundred of us get on the list, right? I'm the second last guy to go on standby. So I get on standby, go back to the plane. This is where you can smoke on airplanes. So we go back there. There's one seat left in the smoking section. Okay? Right next to the window, and then right next to the window is this gown, a good-looking red, good-looking gown in a red dress. <laughs> that red dress, you know? God is working my life today, you know? <laughs> But it's a bad seat, man. This guy's a chatterbox. I just chatter, chatter, chatter. I have not had enough coffee for this gal, you know? So she finally, sh- and she's making no sense at all. She's just, she finally shuts up. Plane takes off. She shuts up. She pulls out a needle point. She starts needle pointing. I look over. She's needle pointing the serenity prayer. <laughs> My turn. So I said, what are you doing? She says, I'm just needle pointing. I said, I know that's what you What are you needle pointing? She didn't want to show me. She's embarrassed. She didn't want to show me. She finally holds it up and she says, Well, they call it the serenity prayer. I said, Oh, man. Are you one of those Jesus freaks? <laughs> she said, No, 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 no. But she's, she says, I am trying to be spiritual. I said, Really? She said, yeah. And she's going, she knows I'm watching, so she's nervous. Her hands are sweaty. She's going real fast. Well, I better stop her before she breaks a finger or something. And I said, Honey, wait just a second. If this is the serenity prayer and you're trying to lead the spiritual life, I said, You mind if I ask you, uh, are you a friend of Bill W's? And boy, she stopped inside and she said, Yeah. Are you? I said, No. <laughs> she gets a funny look on her face, you know. And I said, He died years before I got sober, you know. He just really did. Come to find out this guy had two years sober and this was her first trip away from Dallas 
in sobriety. So we went out to California for training for two weeks. Didn't know a soul in California. Was scared to death. She'd also had her first drunk dream the night before. Didn't know what that. She thought it was a premonition she was going to drink in California. And uh, was just petrified. And we had a great three-hour meeting on that airplane going out there. She cried a little bit. I cried a little bit. She said to me, she said, can you believe this? I've been trying to quit smoking. I was sitting up in the non-smoking section. And when they announced that we wanted, if we wanted to move, we could, because they were letting some standby on. Can you believe, I moved back here, because I was so nervous we needed to smoke. Can you believe God would have me move back here just to sit by you? And I said, hell, he canceled my whole plane to get me to come over here and sit by you. <laughs> Come on, John. God ain't going to do that. You got to cancel a plane just so you can make a 12-step call. You know, come on. God ain't going to do that. It's just good. He's not going to put just the right person at just the right time with just the right information in our lives to help us. Since God works through people, he ain't going to do that, is he? That's just a coincidence, right? You know? 1990, I'm down at Del Rio, Texas. Little teen conference on the border. They call it a border class. No longer there anymore. Saturday, I meet this gal named Dottie. Dottie E. from Connecticut. I said, my God, Dottie, what are you doing in Connecticut? Or what are you doing in Dallas from Connecticut? And she says, well, I'm on my way to see my husband. My husband's in the military. He's in the Navy. And he's, on, and he's in San Diego. We spent the night here last night. We're going to get up and go on this morning. And I just thought, well, we'll spend the day in Del Rio. So we spent the day in Del Rio. And I said, well, great. Welcome to... She called AA and heard about the conference. So she came over to the conference. And welcome to Texas. So I spoke with Saturday night. When I get through speaking... Dottie comes up to me and says, uh, you hear my story? She said, so you grew up in Utah? I said, yeah. She said, well, by any chance do you have any relatives in Orm, Utah? I said, well, I grew up in Orm, Utah. She said, well, are you related to Mark and Betty Joe? I said, well, they're my parents. <laughs> and then Dottie starts to cry and throws her arms around me and tells me what her last name is. And she says, Bobby's my husband. Well, see, he's my first cousin. He's three days older than me. We grew up together, ripping and running. And then when we got out of high school, he went to the Navy and I went to college. I'd seen him one time in 18 years. I didn't know he was in AA. They'd met in Alcoholics Anonymous. They got married when they were two years sober. She was six years sober at the time and he got drunk when he was four years sober. And he couldn't get back. He had a real God problem. We grew up in the same religion. He had a real God problem and he couldn't justify any of that stuff. And... And uh, he was drunk that night. We called him, he was drunk. That opened up a little crack. We made a 12-step call on him. And this month, this month he's got uh, 11 years. August. That's just a coincidence, isn't it? God ain't going to do that. You know the odds of that? She's in Connecticut, he's in San Diego, I'm in Dallas, and we meet in Del Rio. <laughs> Because she wanted to spend the day in Del... Nobody spends the day in Del Rio. <laughs> you know? That's just a coincidence. God ain't going to do that. God ain't going to put just the right person at just the right time with just the right information in our lives to help us, is he? Since God works for people, that's not the way it's going to work. About four or five years ago, five years ago now, I guess, <laughs> I, was in, I was in Hawaii at the state convention there. And... Uh, Friday, I got a phone call Friday morning. My dad had, actually it was Thursday night, late Thursday night. My dad had died in Utah. And uh, they were going to bury him on Monday. And I had to get off the island. I couldn't get off the island until Saturday. And so I got off the island Saturday. And I had to fly a real funny way because it, it was all booked up. And I had to go from Hawaii to San Francisco. I had a four and a half hour layover in San Francisco. And then from San Francisco, I came back to Dallas. And then from Dallas, I went to Houston, from Houston back to Salt Lake. It took me 24 hours to get there. And uh, I got there Sunday afternoon, and we buried my dad on Monday. And then months, Tuesday, I was coming back to Dallas. And some, had some stuff I had to finish. My son dropped me off at the airport at 1230 in the afternoon, and I had about an hour and a half wait for my plane took off. And this is when you could just get on a plane in Utah. You know, security wasn't really the big deal it is now. And uh, so that was the first time I'd been alone since since my dad had died. And I was sitting there by myself at the airport, and I started into the valley. I started talking to myself and thinking about it, and I started in there. But you know, what am I doing in what am I doing in Hawaii? Speaking of that AA convention, I should have been in Utah. My dad had a heart attack two months prior to that. 
the good son would have gone to Utah been with his dad before he died instead of going to Hawaii speaking of that. This, this, this is an eagle trip speaking of that AA convention. I shouldn't have done it. should have gone there. should have been with my dad. You know, I called my mom the night before we left and she said he's doing fine. Go ahead and go. But I shouldn't have done it. I should have taken that time. If I'm going to go anywhere, I should have gone back to Utah. And I just started really beating myself up and right in the middle of doing that. They came over the intercom and they paged and they said, would a friend of Bill W.'s pick up the white paging phone? I couldn't believe it. I thought, he, he thinks he needs the 12-step call, you know? I don't want to pick up this, met this guy from Chicago, man, in the coffee shop. He had 11 years sober, and his dad had died a year prior to that. And we had a great little meeting there. And I asked him, I said, you, you page a lot of people at the airports like that? <laughs> he said, hell, I've never done it in my life. He said, let's find out if there are any drunks in Utah, you know? <laughs> That's just a coincidence, isn't it? God ain't going to do that. God ain't going to put just the right person at just the right time with just the right information in our lives up. See, I thought that told me that I was right where I was supposed to be. My dad was going to die anyway. I needed to be with alcoholics, helping others. And what did, what did the carpenter say? Let the dead bury the dead. You know? My dad was going to die anyway. I'd been with him a couple months prior to that. And then he had the heart attack and then he died. But I was where I was supposed to be. You know? Now, I share that because I know that tonight, in this group, there are some people in a lot of pain. It doesn't seem to really matter whether you're 30 days sober or 20 years sober. Sometimes sobriety hurts. It's very painful. When that happens, you don't know. You know? It's like you've crawled over the edge of the precipice and you're looking at the abyss and you're scared to death and you don't know, "Am am I doing the right thing? Is there something I'm supposed to be doing? Does God really love me? Or am I supposed to be going to some therapy or taking some new medication? Or I've been, you've worked the steps, you've done all this and that, and you're more stripped now than you ever, what am I supposed to be doing? There's something, you know. If that's where you are, then you need to know that tonight more than ever, I know that God himself loves us. And he's totally dedicated to see you make it. He wants you to make it. And he's willing to go to any lengths to see that you do. I used to think that was a one-way street, you know. I had to be willing to go to any lengths to get sober. But I know that God is willing to go to any lengths to see that you get it. He's going to do anything for you. And I don't know how he's going to fix your problem or when he's going to fix it. I don't know what he's going to do about it. What God's going to do is he's going to put just the right person at just the right time with just the right information in your life to help you. Because God works through people. And our role is to make ourselves available to to God's kids to help us. That's why isolation becomes so tough. Because when you start to hibernate and isolate, you've effectively cut God off. Because God works through people. I love you and thank you for the money.